take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. The title of the message is Our New Standing with God. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells us, and he tells the Ephesian believers that, that they and we, if we're following Christ, have new standing with the living God. If you are placing personal trust and faith in Jesus today, you have new standing with God. I want to have you stand with me as we read this passage together in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. This is the word of the living God. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints And members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, as we focus our attention in these remaining minutes this morning on the mystery of the church, uh, we thank you for it. We thank you for uh, ordaining it in eternity past. We thank you that we are allowed to be a part of the church, that you allow us to bring your kingdom plans to fruition, albeit a small part, it's an important part. God, I pray this morning that we would uh, take uh, this section of Scripture, as all sections of Scriptures that we study, that we would take it seriously, that uh, the Holy Spirit would apply uh, these important realities to our lives. God, I pray that we would make life application of what we've learned today. Challenge us, encourage us, may, may you embolden us with the truth that we discover today. And so, Lord, from new believers to to seasoned believers who've been walking with Jesus for many years, make your truth come alive in the pages of your book today. First, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this passage, Paul the Apostle begins by quantifying our new standing with God. He reminds us in verse 19 that we are no longer strangers. He reminds us that we are no longer aliens. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for so many years that you might have a bit of a a hard time remembering what it is like to be a stranger, to be an alien. Well, Paul tells us that Because we are no longer strangers and aliens, we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We no longer walk according to the pattern of this world. He says we no longer submit to the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil. He says that we no longer surrender to the passions of our flesh. We are no longer separated from Christ. Think about that with me just for a minute. If you are following Jesus, you are no longer separated from him. Paul says we are no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. We are no longer hopeless without God in this world. 
One writer says that upon believing, we moved into the very center of God's purpose. Paul tells us that along with Jewish believers, we are now a part of a new community. And Paul tells us that we are not only a part of this new community with with all Gentile believers and all Jewish believers throughout redemptive history. He tells us this, and this is where I want to focus for a moment. He tells us that we belong We belong. Here's a big question that I I thought about for a bit of time this week. I want to pose this question to you. Have you ever been in a place in your life when you just didn't feel like you belonged? Where you just didn't feel like you fit? You feel a sense of isolation because of a number of things. You might feel a sense of isolation because of your gender. Because you're a a woman, because you're a man. You might feel isolation or being disconnected because of your skin color. You might walk into a church if you're brown or black or even if you're white and feel like, I don't fit in in this place. Or perhaps because of your economic status, you just feel like, I don't belong here. Have you ever felt like as a person, as a man or a woman, as a, as a boy, as a girl, that you just didn't measure up? You didn't meet the expectations of the people around you? Well, the days of not belonging, the days of not fitting in are over. The days of not belonging are over because we have been welcomed as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, into a new community. And as we look at the passage before us, I I want to highlight three images that are true of every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three images that beautifully describe our new standing with God. The first one appears in verse 19. Here's what Paul says. He says, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a citizen of God's kingdom. You could put it like this. Because I'm a, a citizen in the kingdom of God, I now enjoy a new status. Paul says, Most specifically in verse 19, we are fellow citizens with the saints. That comes from a Greek term that that implies that every one of the barriers that previously existed between Jewish believers and Gentile believers have been completely obliterated. They've been completely erased. They have been totally removed. Now that might come as a stretch for you to believe that this morning, but think about the first century believers. Think about the, the believers, most notably the Gentile believers in Ephesus, who read this letter for the first time from the pen of the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Imagine as a Gentile believer reading these words that now you are a fellow citizen with the saints. Turn with me 
to Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, the book of Galatians. And look with me at Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. And notice what Paul says. You hear this common theme. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to promise. That not only includes Jews, that includes Gentile believers as well. Baptized Christians are incorporated into a a family of faith, a community in which each member has put on a kind of clothing that covers differences that normally divide people, such as, I've already mentioned, gender, ethnicity, and social status. One writer says, on the basis of faith by which anyone can be united to Christ, all Christians are included regardless of such apparent differences. Those differences have been extinguished. Those differences have been obliterated. We are fellow citizens. We are. Would you do this with me? Those of you in the front, would you? And you know when a pastor says something, sometimes no one does it. We'll we'll change it this time. Would you, if you're in the first 10 rows, do me a favor and and look behind you and look at those people behind you. Check them out. They're good looking folks, right? Do you know who those people are? Yeah, you can wave to them. It's cool. Those are your brothers and sisters. While there is diversity and my personal wish is that we would have even more diversity in the days to come. That we would see Asian people, that we would see African Americans, that we would see Chinese people, that we would see people from from all over God's earth. While there is diversity and there there is varying degrees of social status, we do not allow those things to divide us, do we? We don't say, oh, that person, he doesn't make very much. Oh, that person, she makes a lot. Uh, we're, we don't fit in with him or her. Our union with Christ by faith has united us together with Christ. As I said last week, whenever we cast a, a, a horrible glare at someone who has a different color of skin than us or someone who with a, a different ethnicity, that is, that is a, a, a mark on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has brought us together in unity. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, As soon as we become Christians, we cannot hate anybody. It is utterly inconsistent with grace in the heart to harbor malice against other people. So as we consider this this first image that that we are citizens in God's kingdom, have you have you truly grasped the meaning of that reality? The word citizenship means simply to be a subject in a kingdom. That probably doesn't come as a big shock to you. Paul says this But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so I want to give two very important points of application as we consider what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. First of all, citizenship implies unique privileges. Because you are a citizen in the kingdom of God, that means that you have very important uh, privileges. Let me mention just a few. Every citizen in the kingdom of God is a child of God. Now, we need to remember and be honest with ourselves. Not every person on this planet is a citizen of the kingdom of God. Therefore, if you are not a citizen of the kingdom of God yet, you are not yet a child of God. Moreover, every citizen has been forgiven of all their sins. If you're trusting Jesus today, all of your sins, all your sins in the past, all your sins today, all your sins in the future have been forgiven. You say, my sins today, what are you talking about? I heard R.C. Sproul, who recently went to be with the Lord, he said to a group of people, there isn't one person in this room who has lived perfectly before God since they woke up and got out of bed this morning. That is to suggest that each one of us have committed sin before Almighty God today. Aren't you glad that you're a citizen in the kingdom of God and that all of your sins have been erased, have been forgiven? Every citizen of the kingdom is an heir with Christ. We've learned about that. Every citizen of the kingdom has received an inheritance that is imperishable, as Peter says, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, guarded by the very power of God. Every citizen of the kingdom has at least one spiritual gift. Some of you have been blessed with numerous spiritual gifts. And so being a citizen in God's kingdom means that there are unique privileges. But I want you to also realize that being a citizen carries a great deal of responsibility. What I mean by that is that every citizen of the kingdom is required to serve the king. We are required to serve the king. The Apostle Peter says this very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. He says this, As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as the one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him Belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Every citizen of the kingdom is obligated, moreover, to obey the king. If we are citizens in the kingdom, our responsibility is to obey the king. You remember the words in James chapter 2. Faith without works is... Faith without works is dead. John MacArthur says, We are to affirm Christ as Lord and submit to his lordship. That means that we live lives of obedience. Finally, every citizen of the kingdom is obligated to bear fruit. You say, I thought we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And that is exactly the teaching of the New Testament. But we remember the words of the reformers, and I have cited it so many times from this pulpit, that we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. 
That is, if, if you are trusting in Christ today, if God has done a, a work of grace in your heart, by definition, you will bear fruit. Jesus said it like this, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. And so you see that Christians who are citizens in the kingdom of God, that entails a set of unique privileges. But it also involves some very unique responsibility, many responsibilities. But Paul reveals a second image that I want to focus on for a moment. And this, once again, is true for every follower of Christ. We are not only citizens in the kingdom of God, but we are members of God's family. Look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Isn't that something? God calls you and I, if we are Christians, that we are citizens in the kingdom and we are members of God's household. You can put it like this. We have a new standing with God. We are members of the household of God. The word household comes from a Greek term that literally can be translated like this, members of a household. And Paul uses the same term once again in his letter to the Galatians. He says in Galatians 6.10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are in the household of faith. Now, as Americans, we are very familiar, are we not, with the notion of membership. I remember when I was in high school, I always wanted the jacket. Some of you in the 80s remember the jacket, the members only jacket. I can never afford one. Well, duh, members only. So we understand membership. We we join clubs. We we join country clubs. We join athletic clubs. We join sewing clubs. We join car clubs. You fill in the blank. There is a club for you. The list is endless. Membership in God's family is a very special privilege. But there are some things that membership membership is not. And what I want to focus on here just for a minute is, is to really demystify what membership involves and what it does not involve. Please remember, membership in the local church, it is not a social club. My fear is that many churches have turned in to social clubs. The local church is, is not a volunteer organization. The local church is, is not a friendly group of people who share common interests and values. The local church is not a group of elite people. It is also not a group of sinless people. And if, if you spend five seconds in the local church, you'll discover that one right away, that we are not a group of sinless people. And so I want to ask, what then is the household of God? There are, several, uh, there are several things that surface in the scripture about this. First, I want you to see that the household of God is an embassy. It is an embassy. One writer says, it is an institution that represents one nation inside another nation. It represents the whole group of people under Christ's lordship who will gather at the end of history. He continues, to be a Christian is to belong to a church. I want to stop there. To be a Christian is to belong to a church. 
We find a phenomenon all across America and especially in the Northwest where people will say, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to belong to a church. That is thinking that is absolutely opposed to the New Testament. To be a Christian is to belong to a church. People repent and are then baptized into the fellowship of a church. Looking to Christ as Lord means being united to Christ's people. Jonathan Lehman says, A local church is a group of Christians who gather together in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. And so when we consider the household of God, we remember this is an embassy. We represent the interests of the king. Secondly, the household of God is a community And this community cares and shares and loves and cherishes and admonishes and sometimes confronts and disciplines and also nurtures nurtures the faith of each member. Third, we see that the household of God is a house of prayer. Let me read this verse from Isaiah 56, verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. My friends Jerry and Judy Toon, who oversee the prayer ministry, are working diligently to make sure that Christ Fellowship is a house of prayer. If you're a guest with us this morning, it's my joy to tell you that there is... A room filled with a few people this morning and they are praying for you and they're praying for me and they're praying that this this gathering of people that we would hear and understand the word of God that we would be struck by the message that we see and hear in the word of God. Why? Because this is a house of prayer. There's another image that surfaces in Scripture that helps us understand the household of God. And it's one that might strike you as interesting. And it's one of my favorite. The household of God is an incubator. It's an incubator. Now, I did not have a chance to to talk to to Ben or Abby Ball or to talk most recently to Nate and Lacey. Uh, Both had uh, children, uh, preemies in the hospital that were in. Karen, I could ask you this. Was that little box, is that called an incubator? Okay, and, and so what does the incubator do? When Doreen and I were just up to see Nate and Lacey a few weeks ago, we see their, their beautiful twins in this box, in this incubator. And what does an incubator do? Here's the definition. It's an enclosed apparatus providing a controlled environment for the care and protection of premature children. And so these dear children are kept in this environment to to watch over them, to care for them, to protect them, to ensure their safety, to ensure their health. And Nate and Lacey are home, by the way. We're so happy uh, for the delivery of their little ones. But in the local church, it's the same. The local church, you see, is an incubator. The local church is designed to help nourish and nurture our faith. And the best way to nurture the faith of disciples is this. The Word of God says the best way to to nourish and nurture the faith of disciples is to teach and preach sound doctrine. 
May I put it this way? No sound doctrine, unhealthy believers. No sound doctrine, no sound biblical theology. Believers who are neglected and undernourished and underfed. I need to tell you this. I talk to people all the time who are undernourished, who are underfed, who, who, who crave the word of God. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 marks this as a qualification for the office of elder. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. See, the church is designed to to nurture and nourish our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a verse when you walk into the entryway here at Christ Fellowship from Colossians chapter 1 verse 28 that says, Him we proclaim, that is, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You see, this is a big goal at Christ Fellowship as we have this mission of making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just any disciple. It is a disciple who is mature. It is a disciple who is grounded in the Word of God. It is a disciple who is growing in the Word of God. It is a disciple who, who is walking in obedience to God, walking according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. The household of God is an incubator. There's another thing that the house of God is, and that is it is a training center. It is a training center. Churches, I should tell you, all around the country, this has been happening for several years. Churches all over the country are dumping Sunday school. We're going to get rid of Sunday school. Sunday school is irrelevant. Besides, no one comes anyway. We're going to get rid of theological education. And I should tell you that this move of, of, of throwing away Sunday school and theological education is at cross purposes with Scripture. To get away, to, to throw out theological education is, is a violation of New Testament principles. This is why we offer men's Bible studies, iron men. This is why we offer women's Bible studies. This is why we teach children in children's church and jam and youth ministry and Veritas. Namely, and this is a verse that we looked at in, in one of the Veritas classes this morning, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. If you are not attending Veritas today... And that would include several of you. And this is where it's like, can we get some air conditioning in here for a minute? If you're not attending Veritas, can I say it positively? You are missing out. You're missing out on good fellowship. You're missing out on good friendship. But most importantly, you're missing out on training. Somewhere along the way, a culture was developed, not only at Christ Fellowship, but at other churches where it became popular it became in vogue to just do away with Sunday school, to do away with Veritas. 
to either stay home or to come to church and just chit-chat in the hall instead of attending Veritas. Let's commit together to put an end to those days and participate in Veritas so that we might be trained in the Christian faith. I, I remember it was probably 10 years ago when my family lived in LaGrande. We had a, an adult theological education ministry that we called the Institute of Biblical Studies. Very similar to what we do in Veritas. And, and I oversaw that ministry. And obviously, as the one who oversaw it, I was very passionate about it. And so we would have two or three or four classes each quarter for adults. And we would come together and we would learn the Word of God. And I'll, I'll never forget, one morning I was teaching. And my friend, Dr. Bruce Ware, attended my class. And Bruce is... A professor of systematic theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And it was a joy to have my friend sit in class. And, and since that day, he came many more times. But on that morning, something very interesting happened, which was not prompted by me in any way, shape, or form. Dr. Ware got in the pulpit to preach. And in the course of his message, he, he challenged the church family, as I, was, as I have challenged you. And he said, if you're not involved in the Institute of Biblical Studies, you are missing out. This is a prime opportunity to be trained in the Christian faith, to learn about theology, to learn about the Bible, to grow in your relationship with God. And it, the, the most astonishing thing happened. People started to come to Institute of Biblical Studies by the droves. And it never let up. All it took was my friend to stand in the pulpit and say, y'all need to come. And so with all the, the, the passion I can muster and the compassion I can muster, I want to encourage you to avail yourself to one of the Veritas classes. Finally, I want you to see that the household of God is a worship center. It is a worship center. One writer says the church has been reduced from an organism that emphasizes knowing and glorifying God to an organization that focuses on man's needs. Yet, if you know and glorify God, the needs of your life are answered. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so says Proverbs 9.10. When you have a right relationship with God, everything else will fall into place. I want to ask this morning, how are you functioning as a, as a member of God's family? One of the things that I used to ask when I was a youth pastor, still do this from time to time, is I ask people if they're fat. Usually you get some varied responses, right? Fat's just an acronym. It stands for faithful, available, teachable. Are you faithful? Are you available? Are you teachable? Are you using your spiritual gifts to, to build up the body? Are you, are you, as I mentioned last week, are you sitting and soaking? Or are you moving and grooving? We want to move and groove and not sit and soak. Finally, I want you to see in verses 20 to 22 that we are stones in God's temple. We read those verses with me. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here the people of God are described as stones that make up a holy temple to the Lord. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 also refers to us as living stones being built up into a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We might say that we now have a a new stability, a new stability as we are stones in God's temple. Now, there are four verbs that describe this new stability in verses 20 to 22. First, I want you to see that we are built. We are built. We are built and we are strengthened. Paul uses that same word in Colossians 2 verse 7. He says that we are rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You see, the church belongs to God and was, past tense, built by God. And since it belongs to God and is built by God, this means something that you should see right off the bat. This means that it is God alone who establishes the purpose of the church. We do not have the prerogative to reorder the purposes and the priorities of the church. Some of you are familiar with the so-called emerging church or the emergent church that uh, emerged, pardon the pun, almost 20 years ago. It's hard to find an emergent church these days, but there was a time when the emergent church was, was totally renovating the way people did church. Well, we don't have the, pre- the prerogative to renovate or to reorder the purposes of our sovereign God. I want you to also see that we are, are built on, uh, we are built by God. The church is built by God, but the church is built on a what? It's built on a foundation. What's the purpose of the foundation? It, it holds together the structure that is built above it. Most of you know that I'm not very mechanical. Most of you know that I know virtually nothing about building or, or tools or anything that requires physical dexterity. And so I had to look up the definition for a foundation. Here's what I discovered. The foundation has a threefold purpose. One, to bear the load of the structure. Two, to anchor it against natural forces such as earthquakes. Number three, to isolate it from ground moisture. And what we learn here in this passage is that the church was built on the foundation of what? On the apostles and the prophets. And an important observation we must make is that once the foundation is in place, once it's in place, it never needs to be built again. The apostles and the prophets serve as the stable foundation for the church. They help bear the load of the church. Also notice with me in verse 20 that the foundation of the church is unshakable and unbreakable. You remember Jesus' words to Peter the Apostle who said, On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We also see in this verse, and by the way, the verse is packed. It's packed where we see that Jesus Christ now is the cornerstone of the church. 
Of course, the cornerstone is that first stone that is set in a structure, in the masonry foundation. All other stones now will be subordinate to the cornerstone. All other stones will be set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. And so there's some lessons that we can draw, I believe, from learning that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. We learn this. Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of the church. Jesus Christ is the leader of the church. Nothing is more important than Jesus in the local church. Everyone, moreover, is subject to Jesus. And apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Now, I thought through the the benefits of this foundation. What, What is so important about this foundation of the apostles and the prophets with the Lord Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone? There are a few things that we recognize. There is stability. That's an understatement to say there is stability. We are afforded the luxury of a structure that may be blown by the wind, but it will never collapse. We are afforded the luxury of a structure that may be assaulted by false teachers, but the local church will never succumb. Indeed, Paul refers to the church of Jesus Christ as the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Because of this foundation, we are secure. The church is not only stable, the church is secure. We are secure in what we believe. We are secure in who we place our faith in. We are secure in the gospel. Paul says it like this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are a church who is secure and stable. Finally, we see the benefit of sovereignty. That is, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He rules with great power and authority. We are stones in God's temple. We are built by God. But secondly, we see in verse 21 that we are being joined together. That is, to be fitted or filled together to form a coherent whole. And so while we have seen that God has worked in the past, notice verse 20, built, and the tense of the verb indicates in the past, we are built in the past, we also see that it is presently being joined together. And that is not something that we do, rather it's something that God accomplishes in his sovereignty. It's really an amazing thing, isn't it? That God has built his church, God is building his church And then Paul uses the same term in Ephesians 4.16. He says, From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. What are the implications? God is working each day on his building project. It's called the church. And he is putting the pieces together. And it is a a work in process that should remind us, and listen, it should remind us to be careful to steer clear from cynicism. 
It reminds us that that God is in process of building his church. We should steer clear from skepticism concerning God's plan for his church program. Now, the thought that struck me as I was studying this passage is that sometimes God's building program looks different than the one that we originally envisioned. Any of you have any idea what I'm talking about? My family moved here over six years ago. And I had, I had something in mind. I had something in mind about the way this church would look. And obviously, God had different plans in mind. Well, let's be clear about something. God is building his church. He builds his church in his way, on his timetable, all according to his sovereign mandate. There's a third verb that we see that occurs in in this passage in verses 20 to 23. And we see that we are growing together. That word grow comes from a Greek word that means to to become larger and greater and bigger. It means to extend. It means to expand. And so Paul tells us what this growth entails. The church grows into a, a, a holy temple unto the Lord. And guess where the growth comes from? It comes from God and God alone. We don't manipulate the growth. God incurs the growth. Finally, we see in verse 22 that we are being built together. To be built together, to to undergo construction along with others into a unified whole. God is taking men and women and boys and girls with different interests and different backgrounds and different spiritual gifts, different genders, different ethnicities, different social status. And he's bringing us all together into this unified whole called the local church, the the household of God. That's why he says we are individual stones in God's temple. My wife and I were watching a, a show on 60 Minutes, oh, a few weeks ago. And it was something that I had never heard about, but it, it the whole show was about the Millennium Tower in San Francisco. Have you heard of the Millennium Tower? This documentary described uh, this beautiful tower in Frisco that really left us both in awe as we learned more about this, this massive luxury structure. Built in 2009, this behemoth of a building reaches 645 feet into the air. And by the way, the Space Needle is 605 feet. That gives you a point of reference. Condominiums, if you so choose to live there, run between... Put your seatbelt on. One million and yeah, and ten million dollars. That's what it costs to live in this structure. People of the likes of Joe Montana have lived in the Millennium Tower. It's an absolutely beautiful structure, and I won't bore you with the amenities, but it's it's stuff that um, it's some amazing stuff here. But there are two big problems with the Millennium Tower. Here are the problems. Since 2009, it has sunk 16 inches into the ground. It's not only sinking into the ground, it has tilted 15 inches since 2009. Now, imagine that you spend $10,000 to buy a condominium. And you look to your wife and say, honey, I think we should sell. And your wife looks at you and says, okay, Mr. Smart Guy, who's going to buy 
a $10 million condo that's sinking and tilting. So you take your whole nest egg, if you have, (laughs) nest egg's not the word for it, is it? Your massive nest egg, invest it into a sinking, tilting structure. Some critics, writes Malia Robinson, blame the city of San Francisco for allowing Millennium Partners to anchor the building 80 feet, 80 feet into the packed sand rather than 200 feet down into bedrock. It's an absolutely astonishing problem that the folks in San Francisco have. And here's the reason for the illustration. We are stones in God's temple. And this temple will never sink. This temple will never tilt. God is building his church for his glory. And the amazing thing is we get to be a part of it as stones in his temple. Here's the truth point this morning. Fellow believers in Christ, we belong to a new community. We are citizens of God's kingdom. We are members of God's family. We are stones in his temple. You belong. No matter your gender, no matter your social status, no matter your ethnicity, you belong. You are connected. You matter. And God desires to use you as a vital part of establishing his kingdom on this earth. In a crowd this size... It's my privilege to acknowledge those of you who are not yet a part of this community. If you have yet to place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God invites you to come. And an amazing observation in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, it's a, it's a verse that many of us have learned as children that says this, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And typically we see, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved as an invitation. And an invitation, yes it is, but it is also a command. It is not a mere invitation, it is a command. We are called to believe in Jesus alone for salvation. And when we do, we become citizens in his kingdom, we become members of his family, we become living stones built into a holy temple. What is your relationship today to the local church and the kingdom of God? Let's pray together. Now, Father, thank you for helping us with these, these amazing images. We thank you that you call us citizens in your kingdom. You call us members of your family. You call us uh, living stones in your holy temple. Those of us who have placed faith in Christ. For anyone here who is examining the claims of historic Christianity, would you... Would you draw them to yourself, God? Would you show them the reality of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus Christ came and died on a wooden cross and was buried for three days, and on the third day that God raised him from the dead. And now he lives, he is seated at your right hand, and he rules and reigns for all eternity, and also rules in the hearts of all of his people. I pray that each of us would find ourselves in a position where we're numbered among the people of God. Now, God, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, would you uh, give us great ability to focus in now on the elements, on the the bread that represents the the body of Jesus and the cup that represents the, the blood of Jesus. 
And do this in remembrance of, of him until he comes. And so may these remaining moments be a special time of worship. In his name we pray. Amen.